Welcome to Strictly Jojo, a podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, where every Jojo episode is reviewed by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. And Konokaruda! This is episode nine, and we're reviewing part one, Phantom Blood, The Final Ripple, aka The Final Hamon, if you translate it literally. As always, there'll be spoilers for this episode and anything that's happened previously in Jojo, so you've been warned. We've arrived at the end of part one. It sounds a little more exciting than, than it actually is, I think, just because there's only nine episodes. But hey, we made it. That's this pretty exciting. This is it. This is really is it. Yeah. And for people who haven't watched JoJo before, um, are you surprised? I think we, we probably spoiled it. I think we talked about it um, earlier on in this podcast that there are only nine episodes in this part. But uh, the first time I watched the show, I was super surprised. I was like, oh, that's it? Where does it go from here? Yeah, I didn't expect the ending for part one to come on such short notice um and it's just really strange overall because there are nine episodes for part one versus the 17 episodes for part two that encompass the later half of this i guess this first season um and along those same lines just this final episode for part one is unexpected in itself in the way that it ends the story for jonathan joestar but you know what? We'll just take it as it is and enjoy it for what it is as well. Yeah. And before we dive into this final episode of part one, we want to share just some really quick updates on our end. Um, so we are working on kind of growing the Strictly series in terms of the way you can listen to us and connect with us. Um, so we are expanding by adding a Discord server that we're we're still working on as well as a YouTube channel that's kind of under construction. So look forward to that. We'll share some updates when we get there. Um, but we have officially launched our Patreon OnlyFans. page. <laughs> yes, our, our OnlyFans, like, aka no. <laughs> our Patreon page. And for those of you who listen to us on Strictly Anime, you'll have heard this before. But um, for everybody else, we wanted to just uh take a second to to mention that we've been so incredibly grateful for all the support and for everyone listening to both of our podcasts um strictly jojo and strictly anime and if you do enjoy um you know one of those or both of those shows and have been considering supporting us we do now have that patreon page under the strictly series we want to continue to upgrade these shows and expand um what we do here at the strictly series to kind of you know, bring you guys the best possible content and, and kind of uh, expand our horizons here. So that was the driving force behind us wanting to create our Patreon. Yeah, so please consider supporting us on Patreon. Um, it's a great way for us to get up close and personal with all of you out there um, in return for all of your all of your love and support. Which doesn't go unnoticed. Um, Patreon is just one of the ways that you can connect with us and support the show. Um, but yeah, if you want to check it out, go to patreon.com slash the Strictly Series. But back to our topic here, episode nine. Um, I would say overall, this is a very wild conclusion to part one. I really enjoyed this episode because I think it, while it kind of left things open-ended because there's a part two, I think it brought things full circle for part one overall. Um, it also is very heartbreaking to kind of watch Jonathan and Edina finally have their moment together and then be ripped apart once again by Dio. Um, he, he's a, a pretty tragic character overall, which I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit. But um, yeah, I, I, I like this episode a lot. It's probably one of my favorites of this part. And just when you think he's out, Dio just has one more goddamn trick up his sleeve. <laughs> um, 
because I'm pretty sure this is the second time that he's returned to the story or I, the third time that he's been defeated overall. Um, it's just like this guy's just so relentless about defeating Jonathan and trying to become an, an immortal being. And as I said earlier in the episode, this was a very unexpected and I guess melancholic ending to part one. But I get that it's supposed to like truly highlight Jonathan's nobility and the intertwined fates of him and Dio. So like you said, as much as you hope for a happy ending for Jonathan and Irina, I would say the writing was pretty much on the wall because Dio just had to butt in one more time. And I, I guess it's just that trope of, you know, everything being too good to be true, especially when Irina says when they're on the boat, like, I wish today could last for all eternity. Maybe like, she jinxed it. I guess, but whenever you hear a quote like that in a movie or TV show, you know, like, it's it's not going to end pretty for these people. And that was the same case here, I guess. Yeah. But let's go ahead and fall right into part one, episode nine, the final ripple or the final hamon. For I don't use. know why they just didn't call it the final hamon. Yeah. It, it bothers me that they translated it to final ripple, but. As I know that the dub uses ripple instead of hamon for, for whatever reason. But even the, I think you and I looked it up, the Wikipedia article for part one, Phantom Blood, even says the final ripple, even though a lot of those translations are. Um, I guess not what you see on Hulu. So for our our episodes, we went with what shows up on on Hulu just because that seems more localized. Not localized, but um, I think for anyone who's trying to watch it out this way, um, it just makes more sense because it lines up to those titles better regardless of where you're watching it. But then for, I think, the Japanese literal translations, that's what Wikipedia seems to have. It's a little confusing, but I don't know. This one was a weird one. I guess they just didn't want to look like it was saying the final ham. Because, <laughs> you know, hamon and... But hamon is like is its a... own thing, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, who knows. But anywho's, let's go on with the synopsis. In quite a lengthy epilogue for part one, Dio uses the last ounce of his big brain time to cut off his head before it is consumed by hamon. And Wang Chan procures the head from its long-winded fall down the cliffside. Speedwife who destroys the spoopy stone mask with a hammer, and Jonathan marries Irina as a symbol of his return to a quieter life. On the very specific date of February 7, 1889, the couple set sail for their honeymoon to America and are seen off by their family and friends. Unbeknownst to them, however, a mysterious coffin with a built-in sound effect is brought on board their ship. During their all-inclusive dinner, Jonathan spots Wang Chan in a corner of the room and surmises that Dio is still alive and unwell. Turns out that the fiend from the Far East has infected the whole ship with his zombie virus, and that Dio's head was hiding within the mysterious coffin. Dio fatally injures Jonathan with his Death Star laser eyes, and declares his intent to use Jonathan's body in his bid for immortality. In the scuffle, however, Jonathan manages to use the last of his Hamon energy to kappa the detate out of Wang Chan's head, and force him to disrupt the ship's engine in order to destroy the entire craft. Irina grieves over the husband she hitched for a hot minute and resolves to die with him, but Jonathan encourages her to susume and save the baby of a mother who died a couple feet from them. No questions axed. Jonathan cradles Dio's head before it can attack, and he embraces his bedeviled brother with the last of his honorable love before passing away. 
Irina and the baby stow away in Dio's explosion-proof coffin as the ship is blown to oblivion. She is rescued off the coast of the Canary Islands and vows to carry on the noble legacy of Jonathan Joestar as part one, Phantom Blood, comes to a close. Oh, but wait, look at these weird breathing human carvings in a South American cave real quick before the credits roll. Oh, never mind. Too late. And now on to our next segment of the show, Is That a Music Reference, where we document any and all nods, homages, and tributes that this extraordinary anime makes to the ordinary world of music. There is only one in this entire episode, and that is through the character Father Styx, which is a blatant reference to the American progressive rock band Styx. And I also think it's pretty fitting because I know one of Styx's big hits is called Come Sail Away. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. Um, but this is Father Styx is like a one-off character in this episode because I think his only purpose is to connect us with what's going on within Dio's mysterious coffin. And I think it's just a subtle hint of what we can expect with part two um, because I think the priests that see him off mentioned that he's going on a mission to Mexico and we kind of see hints of that um, South American setting um, at the very end of this episode. Holy shit. I never thought about that. You're mm-hmm. right. He, they did say he's going on a mission to Mexico. Oh, without giving away too much about part two, that does tie into part two. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but so there you go. Come sail away. Come sail away. Now it's time for the JoJo meme rundown, where we list each new JoJo meme that appears in this episode. There are only two, but they're kind of awkward. Like they're not straight up memes. They're like part of memes. So the first one is Speedwagon. There's actually two moments where um, screenshots of Speedwagon from this episode get used a lot in memed moments. Um, The first is after he smashes the hammer, sorry, smashes the mask with the hammer, and he kind of like tips his hat a little bit and looks up at the sky. That's that's one of them. And the other, yeah, (laughs) Milady. And the other is when he's seeing off Jonathan and Edina, he kind of like crosses his arms and like looks all proud, like a proud mom or something. Um, that's the other one that gets used a lot in other other memes. So they're not like by themselves memes, but they get used as part of memes. And honestly, I think we can say maybe like a 2.5 or sorry, 1.5 is that Speedwagon himself is a meme. Everything he does is just very meme-like. So we can call mm. him kind of the the meme in and of itself. And the other one for this episode similarly is kind of like not... It's a weird one because it's not actually in the show, but it's a meme that goes around for people who first watch JoJo where they're watching it for the first time. They get to episode nine, Jonathan dies, and they're like, wait, what? The main character died and we're only nine episodes in? Like, what the fuck? That That's a big meme for, for those first timers. Um, and again, I was that exact same way. Like, where do we go from here? Like, the main character died. Like, now what? <laughs> yeah, and th- this is where... I almost got confused, like, what are they going to do in part two if there's no Jonathan left? But I think Adrian kind of hints to it at the end of this episode about carrying on the Joestar legacy. So as much as yeah, I think the whole or the key word for this episode is like unexpected, um, there's still a lot for this show to offer uh, past part one. And if we missed any memes from this episode, please, as always, let us know because we don't want to miss a single one of these memes from the most memeable anime in existence. Well, one of them anyway. 
So getting into this episode, um, let's start with Speedwagon. I just want to call out that when he does, you know, get the honor of smashing the mask with the hammer, he is so damn proud. It's like heartwarming best waifu moment. Like, as we mentioned just a moment ago, when he kind of tips his hat and looks up at the sky, like he is just so happy. He's like, all this shit's over with. Jonathan and Erina are getting married. You know, everything's great. We can finally live our lives as normal. And uh, yeah, that's short lived. But at least he had that moment. I also like, I think when he uses the hammer, he does it with one hand and his other arm is just like hanging there. <laughs> it's almost like a, a weird um, Shakespearean pose, I guess. It's like right. either the hammer's not that heavy or Speedwagon's like shoulders are or really, really toned. Just being very overdramatic and <laughs> destroying the thing that has caused such a mess for everybody. I like to think it also symbolizes like Speedwagon getting to destroy the mask on behalf of Zapelli because um in these last couple of episodes we've seen uh Jonathan kind of focus on his fight with Dio but Speedwagon's been the one kind of connecting things back to Zapelli and thanking him and saying look Zapelli look what we accomplished it's all over now so I think it's very fitting that Speedwagon gets Speedwagon gets to be the one who finally destroys the mask and I think one piece of internal dialogue that he says um, while he's watching or seeing Jonathan and Irina off, it, like he's mentioned, like he's, he's so happy for them. But then he says something along the lines of, you know, I hope that I don't interfere. Do you remember that? Yeah. So he says something <laughs> like, "I'll always be there." So yeah, they're they're. Um, he waves goodbye to them, and the ship kind of sets sail. And then that's. I think this is where that meme comes in, where he's like crossing his arms and looking all proud. But he says, "I'll always be there for the two of you." Um, says whatever you need i won't be far behind and then he mentions like even if i do get in the way sometimes you know like, what, are you, what like, are you trying to do speed <laughs> trying to well, take jonathan away from arena i i kind of it, it harkens back to that episode where jonathan and Irina reunite in the hospital and Speedwagon's like creeping on them like looking in the crack of the doorway all like i don't know very like creepy mm. <laughs> i don't know of any other word for it but um i feel like that's that's kind of what he's saying is like i'll always be there maybe almost too much but i'm not gonna leave you guys behind i thought it was a really sentimental thing that speedwagon said um and it does uh kind of play into kind of what's what's ahead in uh in jojo in this season and one quick thing i wanted to note it is just a very brief uh, flash of jonathan and edina's wedding day um, and the image, actually, I'm not going to spoil anything, but the stained glass behind them, I think you mentioned this too, like the figure that you see is very oddly familiar. Um, and it, it kind of brings up a theory about something or a character that appears in a later part. Yeah, people speculate that there's some hidden meaning for future parts in that mm -hmm. stained glass, which is kind of cool once you actually get to those parts in the show it's kind of cool to look back at that and and you know say oh that, that could be what that is so without yeah. you know saying what it is um we'll we'll be sure to to bring that up at a later point point. and i don't know if that's that was a shot for shot from the manga itself or if david production just wanted to kind of slip that in there as uh as a i guess a, a nod to uh, longtime jojo fans but um it's nice to kind of see i guess almost like it's almost like a callback um for people who are re-watching the series and, and realizing these things for the first time 
I do want to ask. So when they're um, when they're sending off Jonathan and Irina, and like everyone is there, it's like literally everyone is there because who the fuck are those two guys with Tom Petty and Straits? Like they yeah. look familiar, but I don't know who. I was like, who the fuck are they? <laughs> I don't think. Well, oh wait, Straits was there, but yeah. yeah, there's two other people, and I wrote here that one of them looks like a, an Endeavor knockoff. Um, <laughs> the other one kind of looks like a like a Julius Caesar because he has it looks like little laurels above his above his ears. But I have no clue who those two are, and I forget if they end up in the next part. Um, I think I, my guess is that maybe we saw flashbacks of them, or they were included in flash flashbacks for Zapelli when he was talking about his training with Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. But truthfully, I don't remember. So I don't know if maybe it's either my guess is either that or they were briefly part of the story but couldn't be written in for the anime. So maybe David Production just threw them in there as like a quick like, hey, by the way, these guys are still here. Yeah, or even I had to look up on some of the JoJo fandom wikis. Um, to see if they were mentioned, but there were no names for them there either, unless I'm just looking in the wrong place. So who knows? I'm, I'm, my assumption is, again, they're just Hamon users who were there to to, to provide oversight or security for Ton Petty. On the ship, when we kind of transition to Jonathan and Edina, I think it's like really sweet to to see the two of them just so happy, so in love. They're newlyweds. Um, and I, I kind of came to this realization that Edina never met George Joestar because Jonathan says like I, I really wish my my father could have met you and I'm like oh shit that's right they never did meet each other um, and it's kind of sad because I'm sure George Joestar would have loved Edina and been very happy that they were together. I just find that so hard to believe because we've seen Jonathan and Edina since their childhood years and at any point you don't think Jonathan would have told his dad like hey there's this girl that I've met. I'd like for you to meet her as well. He may have told her or told him about Edina, but I don't think they've ever met. I, I imagine back then that it probably was like a long courting period before, you know, a boy introduced a girl to his his parents. Um, but also, I think pretty shortly after they started dating, that's when Dio kind of drove Edina away from Jonathan. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing. Like This is mentioned later on. I don't think Jonathan ever mentioned all of this stuff that went on with Dio to Edina as well, right? Yeah, no, she's like, what the fuck is <laughs> happening when she gets downstairs in the ship? Like, oh my God, I can't even imagine. Like you would think, you know, now that you're a married couple, you know, you, you'd be as transparent as you can with each other, communicate things. Like, I would think this is a pretty, pretty important thing to communicate that your, your former brother is trying to conquer the world. Yeah, <laughs> there's zombies and vampires and masks and all sorts of shit. But mm-hmm. I think that that just goes back to how Jonathan wanted so badly to protect Edina from all of this. Unfortunately, yeah. it didn't pan out that way. And it kind of like backfired a little bit on him just because she was so confused by everything. But props to her because she managed through that situation like a fucking champion. Mm-hmm. She was like, I mean, I'm sure she was scared, but she kind of fought through that and was like, nah, I'm ready to die with you, okay? Yeah, her world was literally crumbling down in her, like, even though... Uh, this scene that we're still referring to it's just a tender moment between jonathan and edina um so it's nice to see that before again all the shit breaks out um and like i said edina's world is just starts crumbling down before her very eyes um on on this ship 
But when Dio does make his entrance, so let's talk about that. When when Dio makes his grand entrance in this episode, which is just his head in a fucking jar, um, there's this really nice exchange between Dio and Jonathan when um, they first kind of meet up. And Dio's saying, like, you know, you're going to be my my host. I'm going to take your body, blah, blah, blah. But then he says something like, though I once despised you, I now respect you. Um, And I just think that that's really, really important for the this character dynamic between the two of them because Dio is straight up evil we've seen that time and time again there's no hope for him no matter how much Jonathan hoped that there would be hope for him and kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt multiple times but the fact that Dio of all people actually respects somebody else and that it's the the you know the adopted brother that he despised and thought was you know stupid and useless and all this stuff uh, back when they were kids like that that's a a major point in I don't know if you would call it Dio's character arc or maybe Jonathan's character arc or maybe their their relationship arc. But um, yeah, this is a, a huge turning point. And you even see that because later on, after he's injured Jonathan, um, Wang Chung starts to insult him and like revels in watching Jonathan suffocate. And Dio kind of reprimands him for that um, and for, for mocking someone that he has learned to respect so highly. And he acknowledges that he would want a swift death for Jonathan um, as as gratitude for, or I guess as a factor of that respect in, more, in order to take his body, which I guess taking his body in order to, to live on in immortality is a weird, twisted way to respect Jonathan. But if, if that's how Dio wants to, to show his brother some respect, then... Oh okay yeah that's a good point because i thought like dio could have taken anyone's body mm-hmm. like i know jonathan's fucking ripped and all this shit but man if dio needed a body that bad he could have just like found any old dude or chick or whoever he wanted yeah. and just ripped their head off and and you know fused with them or whatever he was trying to do and the he kind of clarifies that at one moment saying that he wants to take the body of the only man that i respect or mm-hmm. that, that he respects um, so that I think is just why he's so hell bent on it being Jonathan's body that he takes over, and it's not because of like his abilities, not because of his hamon, which would be kind of counterintuitive. If he took a body full of hamon, he would just die after that. But it's because of that level of respect that he's now um, that he now has for for Jonathan, for his adopted brother. And to your point. A little bit earlier, um, you mentioned when Wing Chung goes after um, Jonathan and insults him. Dio says, and these are not like verbatim quotes, but basically says, I'll tolerate no insult to Jojo. Give him his due respect by painlessly severing his head. So this is uh, the, the whole the whole exchange. This whole part is, I think, really important. And I think that respect almost plays into the very end, to jump ahead just a tiny bit, where Jonathan grabs Dio's severed head and just embraces him and then has that inner monologue. Um, I think that's Jonathan's way of accepting Dio's respect, maybe even being a bit surprised by it and giving him some respect in return by giving him, I guess, a, not a noble death, but like a, a, re- a respectable death. Like, what would you call it? Just, it's, it's a death that's not like gruesome or kind mm. of makes Dio feel um, you know, weak or whatever. It's just him just being like embraced humble, by his brother. A humble death. Yeah, a humble death. That's a good way of putting it. So again, this is just another instance where Jonathan is a gentleman and could have easily, I don't know, like stomped on Dio's face. I don't know, but he just embraces him and just peacefully goes. 
I do have one thing, and it okay, it has to deal with the the lore of Hamon in this show. Um, I was thinking about it, like how could Dio take Jonathan's body if it's been so imbued with Hamon energy because he's like utilized Hamon for so long. But I guess if Jonathan dies, that kind of that Hamon just dissipates. Dis- yeah, dissipates. Plus, he he said he was using his last of his final Hamon to. Yeah like melt Wing Chung's head which by the way apparently Hamon can control zombies now like this is new and would have been useful a yeah, long that, time ago no, that was my second thing like how does Hamon have the ability to now disrupt Wang Chung's body functions instead of just disintegrating his entire body and it's not like Jonathan came across this accidentally and was surprised by it like oh shit mm. I'm able to control him he knew he intentionally did what he did like he made the hand movements and all this shit in order to control his zombified body. So I'm like, if you knew this was a thing, why didn't you use it sooner? Can you imagine how useful <laughs> and like how much easier things would have been if they had done that earlier on? This just reminds me of, oh, here's my other Star Wars reference, like the rise of Skywalker, introducing a new way to utilize the force that could have been used like in the original trilogy <laughs> or the prequels, but... Yeah, this is a new power that it, that exists with Hamon, and you know we're not gonna question it. Although it is kind of strange. The final moment or moments between Edina and Jonathan were again just so so heartwarming, but so so sad. Um, Edina, as we mentioned, like amidst her confusion and her being afraid and seeing Dio not only alive but a severed head, um, she she kind of surpasses all of that fear and runs to Jonathan and says that she would rather die with him than be without him. And I just have to say, like, again, I think I mentioned this in a a previous uh, podcast episode, but if Speedwagon is best waifu, Edina is without a doubt best girl. She's super brave in this moment, given all the fucked up shit that she's witnessing for the first time out of nowhere. Um, And she just wants to be with Jonathan. She wants to run to his side, help him however she can, and die with him and i'm like holy shit man that's that's intense but that's also very very admirable i think it's also sad because earlier in the episode when they're both outside the boat um jonathan tells arena i do anything to protect the world you live in um and then you see that here because i think one of the final things he does is as the ship's engine explodes um he shields Edina from from the shrapnel and it ends up lodging behind his back. So his one last way to protect her. But I think on a higher level, this this whole episode is meant to show, again, the intertwined fates of Jonathan and Dio. And as much as Jonathan wanted to live a quieter life and um, marry Edina and, and have a family with her, unfortunately, I think, this highlights that Jonathan's destiny does not lie with Edina, but again with Dio, which is why he subsequently tells her to to leave the ship or escape the ship and save the, the baby um, because he wants her to, to continue with her own life and to be to be happy, um, even if that means it's going to be without him. Yeah, in the most gentlemanly way, Jonathan, after, you know, the explosion happens and he gets a bunch of shrapnel stabbed in his back, he tells her to grab the baby and tells her to be happy. 
Um, and it's just, I don't know, like I said earlier, Jonathan went from being a very heroic, brave, gentleman-like character to being a very tragic character all in one fell swoop. And his relationship with Anina is equally tragic because they loved each other for most of their lives, but barely got to spend any time together. Like first they were mm-hmm. driven apart by Dio when they were kids. And then they got reunited, but Jonathan had to go off and train in Hamon and pursue Dio within like a day or two um, of them getting back together. And then here he dies on the way to their fucking honeymoon. I'm like, oh my God, man, these two people, that, that really sucks. Yeah, and can't imagine like the trauma that, Edina is probably going through mentally um, trying to process all this even though she she comes out stronger in the end which is which is great yeah not to mention to that point like her and the baby were in that fucking coffin in the middle of the ocean for two days (laughs) two days and i'm like i'm pretty sure that they just started their dinner before all this shit went down and all she had to eat was like a sip of wine so she's out there with like no food in her stomach a baby in her belly another baby crying and she's like whose baby is this and then she's just (laughs) in the ocean for two days in this tiny ass coffin that was meant for a vampire like that is a wild moment for her Mm mm-hmm And speaking of baby, if you didn't kind of get what she mentioned about um, her saying a new life had awakened in her, that's her kind of indicating that she is pregnant with Jonathan's child, which is also very sad, kind of going back to the tragicness of their relationship, because Jonathan never gets to meet his baby. At least he knocked her up when he had the child. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) At least they got to consummate the marriage. Mm -hmm. Really quick, just to kind of discuss more about jonathan and dio's relationship um again we see at the end that jonathan ends up embracing dio's head instead of attacking it like he usually would have with hamon it's kind of like he's killing him with kindness and i think this is the third person that jonathan has held in his arms that was close to death like first was george and then zeppeli now dio although it's jonathan now who is on the verge of dying um it's i think it's symbolic because like this part one was a journey that started with jonathan kind of being somewhat aloof and unkempt in comparison to dio's i guess proper etiquette which is what george had originally thought of dio Um, but now it's like the tables have turned where jonathan is now emerging as this honorable hero albeit tragic like you had originally said and now it's dio who's kind of been consumed by his own aloof ways by being so full of hatred and immorality i guess so almost like a of subverting of expectations um which is a, a, a term that i don't like to use a lot but but you do use <laughs> <laughs> because uh, yeah i don't know if there's another way to kind of explain this relationship hey but it's, a, it's a good way of explaining it yeah um so yeah there's there's definitely a lot of character development in this moment for jonathan um because instead of now or instead of taking out his brother you know like the lethal way um he's grown to just capitalize on the nobility that we've seen in jonathan throughout these later episodes for part one yeah and what's ironic is like if dio hadn't shot you know, eye beams at Jonathan, he may have survived that explosion. It's because Jonathan died that he was kind of like stuck there. You mm. know what I mean? So yeah. that, that was kind of just interesting. But then that also reminds me of that Dio mentions earlier on in the conversations between him and Jonathan that without 
so Dio acknowledges that without Jonathan and him kind of fighting his kids and activating the mask and then Jonathan doing all that research on the mask, he never would have learned about those powers that it held. Um, so it's kind of interesting because Jonathan is semi-responsible for Dio obtaining his powers. Mm. Um, but then Dio also says, like, because of you at the same time, I've now, you know, the world has slipped through my fingers. So it's just like this, this very much like back and forth between the two of them. First, Dio learns about the mask and gets his powers because of Jonathan, but then he loses everything because of Jonathan. And then Dio kills Jonathan, essentially. But because he kills Jonathan, Dio is also killed. So to your point earlier, their fates are really, really intertwined. Yeah. And just Jonathan's death. I like Dio as Jonathan's embracing him, like Dio's trying to persuade him, like you need to um, find a way out of this this exploding ship so that you can be with Irina forever. Although we know that Dio just wants to take his body. But as he's talking, Jonathan's already passed. Like it's just so intriguing that, this bold heroic character has a very humble death and we don't even technically see it on screen yeah that's a good point because oftentimes like pretty much in all entertainment you get that very dramatic death where like they're able to say like their final words i mean look at zapelli Mm -hmm. the guy got chopped in half and he was still able to continue talking and grow old and then keep talking some more and then die in jonathan's arms like this perfectly coordinated sequence yeah but then jonathan like just he just passes like that that was such a unique way of going about it versus mm-hmm. like oh i'm dying but let me have some fi- let me live just long enough to have some final words and then pass out at the last second yeah it's again a very unexpected way to end um such a powerful protagonist's life but you know it, it, this is a bizarre adventure we're not always going to ex- to expect the unexpected and I have to say, I absolutely love the animation quality of this episode. Um, in the last episode, we talked about how there was a, a sudden increase or improvement in the animation quality for the penultimate episode of part one. But then I feel like things just got even better and more clean and refined for mm-hmm. this final episode. Everything is drawn absolutely beautifully. The, the close-up shots of everyone's faces have like these big, bold lines and like gorgeous shading and colors and everything. Um, and I think that's appropriate because again, it's Jonathan's final episode. So David production, David Productions does again, just a fantastic job of animating every major shot of him so well that it kind of makes him look very stoic. Like each shot, like no matter what the situation is, him just chatting with Irina, him realizing that um, that the vampires are on the ship, him having his exchange with, with Dio and struggling to breathe. I mean, all of it is just a fantastic way for them to pay tribute to him. Um, and honestly, there were some episodes in this part, especially earlier on, where the way they drew him made him look so fucking ugly, <laughs> just like mm. really, really nasty looking. But this episode, he's drawn very well and looks incredibly like handsome and noble and really kind of what I imagine for the gentleman character of Jonathan Joestar. Yeah, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode that the character's features are more defined and that's still on display here. I feel like with Jonathan, you get more of that that JoJo face, um, almost like that JoJo meme face that you always see um, with these characters. So, yeah, props to David Production for upping the quality, um, especially in this last episode for Part 9. 
or part nine, part one, <laughs> part episode nine. nine of part one. <laughs> I don't even think there's a part nine in the manga <laughs> yet. <laughs> uh. And at the very end of this final episode for part one, we get a preview of some figure, some dude etched in stone, which is prepping us for part two. And all you get is that shot. It's like this like rainforest looking area and then it zooms into like a cave and then you get the menacing kind of like scrolling across the screen and then it cuts to the the end theme song and that's it. That's all we can say for now because you got to tune in on our next Strictly JoJo episode to hear what part two is all about. And I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for um, season one right now. Like part one ended uh, December twenty, December first, twenty twelve, and then part two started up the week later. So as much of a cliffhanger that that scene felt, um, the people who are watching this live didn't have to wait long to find out what what the context of that final scene in this episode was. Yeah, they literally only had to wait like probably a week. Yeah. <laughs> But it's still very mysterious, and we'll we'll see soon how that is going to connect us to the events of part two. And that brings us to our final thoughts, not only on part one, episode nine, the final ripple, but with part one as a whole. So for your overall rating for part one, how many hamon sandwiches out of 10 would you give Phantom Blood? Do the hamon sandwiches have pepper on them? (laughs) <laughs> that was my attempt at a Zeppelin. <laughs> so as a diehard JoJo fan, I want to rate this a 10 out of 10 because <sighs> to me, everything JoJo is a 10 out of 10. But as a... Critical a, thinker. Yeah. <laughs> as, I don't know, like a, a podcaster who reviews anime, I guess, um, I'll give it a more critical and realistic score. So I would say this part for me is a 7 out of 10. Um, not because it's short, but mostly because the story itself isn't the most compelling story of JoJo. We've said it before in the beginning of you know, this, this podcast, um, when we first started, you know, reviewing Jojo part one, that this is of all the parts, the least exciting, the least hyped of all of them. Not to say it's a bad part, but if you had to compare it across all of the currently five parts, it sits at the bottom of the list. So I would say it's seven because it's still a really good story. It sets the foundation for everything that's to come in Jojo. It introduces us to some really great characters it embraces everything nonsensical and silly and and just unthinkable that that we know about Jojo. Um, And I would say that, uh, yeah, as a final episode, this is also a solid one for me. What about you? Yeah, for part one overall, I'd give a pretty similar rating, um, seven and a half out of ten, just to give it a little bit more of a push to a 10. <laughs> um, yeah, part one was a JoJo part that I felt was just very reflective of the times in which the manga was published. So I want to say mid to late 80s, where a lot of these campy horror themes seem to be all the rage. Not to say that that kind of hindered this part in any way, because I think it still managed to maintain a very unique vibe around it. But at times, the whole like vampire zombie spiel just felt kind of stale. Um, in terms of Hamon, it f- at first felt like your typical anime energy or power, along the likes of like 
you know, quirks or cursed energy if we're looking at modern day anime powers. But I think it being established here in part one, it, it's used to a comedic effect and it also doesn't seem to take itself too seriously, which was nice. Um, I guess one flaw with part one that I saw is like for it being a very short part in comparison to the other five Jojo parts or the other four Jojo parts that are currently out for the anime, you get a very like abridged story of Jonathan's character development as he becomes a Hamon master um, battling Dio as evil incarnate. So a lot of the details don't really get fleshed out. And I think we've commented on this, the whole conflict with Dio itself. I think it almost takes place over like two weeks. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So if, if this part were given a little bit more credence, although I think I'm pretty sure the, the source material in the manga was as short as this part is in the anime, um, it would have made for for a more enjoyable ride. But all that aside, I think it, I appreciate all the American music and pop culture references that JoJo is known for that has been established with this part, as absurd as they can seem in this Victorian-era period piece. So all things considered, I think part one sets a solid foundation, like you said, for the parts to come. But at the same time, it seems that everything that follows part one just takes a sharp left turn from what you expect. Yeah, you think that part one's weird. And I know I called it nonsensical and silly and and outrageous, but it only gets more outrageous. Like this is this is the tip of the iceberg. But speaking of, of what's to come, so part two. Um, what are your, without spoiling anything, what are your feelings about part two? What are, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to talking about? Again, without spoilers, which is going to be tough. <laughs> I think part two is when the bizarre aspect of JoJo's bizarre adventure really gets kicked into full gear. So I'm really looking forward to a lot more of these lighthearted, humorous moments, um, that are synonymous with that part. Um, not that it, it doesn't like it, there's still a very serious story behind it, but I think with part two, it starts to not take itself too seriously. And, you know, for the period that part two takes place in not again, I don't want to spoil anything for now, but there's just a lot of absurd shit that happens and alliances that you wouldn't expect to be considered as alliances, (laughs) but yeah, I think part two is where I remember, like, I that's where I fell in love with this show just because of the amount of humor that it balances along with with this driving plot. A hundred percent. And I think that's, that's a feeling that a lot of people get. They are not hooked by, um, they're not hooked on JoJo by part one. They're hooked on JoJo by part two. Mm-hmm. And it's, it doesn't take that many episodes for part two to really kind of grab you. I mean, that the same thing happened with me. Like, I have always seen the memes for Jojo and I'm like, I don't get it. What is this show about? I'll give it a chance. And I'm watching part one. I'm like, okay, it's, it's fine so far, but I I just don't feel that sense of hype that everyone keeps kind of like putting on Jojo. And when I got to part two, I was like, I get it now. I a hundred percent get it. I absolutely love this show. I was completely hooked at that point moving forward. Um, and it has been, a wild ride since then mm-hmm. but i i am very excited to, to talk about part two it's it's one of my favorite parts and has one of my favorite characters 
And um, to kind of your point, it does have a much more comedic element to it than part one does. So it is kind of a a new a new way of looking at JoJo, but a refreshing way of looking at it at the same time. And to kind of round off with part one, I just want to say that Jonathan is the noblest character in the whole series. <laughs> Jonathan is the noblest character in the whole series. Take that as both an FYI and a warning. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just let that stick with you as we continue on with part two of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. And that wraps up episode nine of Strictly JoJo and concludes part one of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly series and be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming service so you can be notified when new episodes premiere every other Monday. Follow us on Instagram at the Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series and connect with us there or on our website, thestrictlyseries.com to share your thoughts on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. You'll also find more info on Strictly Anime, our other podcast for anime reviews and discussions. Thank you so much for listening and sharing our love of JoJo. Stay weeb, everyone. Fiend.